James chapter 3, starting in verse 13 through 18, as we look at the topic now of wisdom. Remember, James has been kind of pretty topical throughout the book of James, talking to Christians, all first-generation Christians, none of whom, well, because they were the first Christians, and there had been no Christians before them. And James was writing, how do Christians live? And he explains to them what Christian faith produces in the lives of those who follow Christ. What do they do? What do they not do? And here, the topic is wisdom, as you see the title of the message, Be Wise, Guys. Be careful how you interpret that. In the, so, as we talk, think about wisdom and prepare our minds for the, the topic at hand in the Word of God, the world pursues wisdom in a lot of different ways and for a lot of different reasons. I mean, everybody needs answers. And they think, logically, if I have wisdom, I can make good decisions. But how do people, or why do people need wisdom? Well, for relationship struggles with a spouse, romantically maybe, with a, a, a friend, with children, with uh, maybe relationships that have been strained over many years. What are, what are the right ways to go about handling these relationships? People need wisdom for financial hardships, my growth, my gain, my gains, my mortgage, my debt, my taxes. People need wisdom for their, their physical maladies. You know, the, those things in my life that I maybe could control or can't control that, that hurt my body physically. And then I need wisdom. I, know, I need to know how to answer these, to, to navigate life through these. Sometimes it's even within myself. It, a, a spiritual problem or, or a non-physical problem necessarily, something like depression or, or something deeper within me that I struggle with. And I need wisdom for handling these issues, making a good decision through them. But how, do, how does the world find them? Many times you'll see wisdom or seeking wisdom depicted as like climbing a mountain there's somebody, they, they have a long, arduous journey up a mountain, and at the top of the mountain, what do they find? Like a monk, right? Or somebody who's sitting on a rock, and he's meditating on the universe, and they, you can ask the monk three questions, or whatever it is, to find wisdom. Because apparently in that scenario, wisdom is found by, in isolation from all people and all things, in contemplation of the universe, or whatever it might be. Lots of times, people just view wisdom as unattainable. It's some mystical thing floating above my head, and the way I can attain wisdom is just by thinking hard enough, or thinking about, or meditation, or, or whatever it might be. But let me assure you and encourage you, true wisdom is not elusive. The book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True, genuine wisdom is only found in right relationship with the Lord, but it can be found. You can have wisdom. A Christian doesn't need to search the world for wisdom, asking uh, the, the scholars of the day. The, a Christian doesn't need to climb the mountaintop to find the person hiding out. The Christian can just ask the Lord, as James told us in chapter 1. 
If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. God grants it to those who ask in faith. Now faith, as James has told us, is something that is active. It's not just passive. We ask in faith, which is something that is active. And one of the things about faith is that faith produces wisdom. That is, in fact, the point of our message this evening, that genuine faith in Christ produces godly wisdom. Well, how can faith produce wisdom? Well, I'll I'll tell you, we have in our passage three different points we'll look at, three proofs that we are demonstrating God's wisdom in our life as we live by faith. So I will read us um, verse 13 through 18 if you would like to follow along, and then we'll ask the Lord for wisdom as we study this, his word together this evening. James chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. God, hmm, genuine faith in Christ produces godly wisdom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we study this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study the book of James. We thank you that you have led us through the study, and I pray for your wisdom. As we interpret together, as we look at what James has for us, we know it's also what you have for us. We know your word is powerful to change our hearts, to help us to um, live in a way that reflects the image of Jesus Christ in our lives. And I pray that you would help us to do that this evening. Help us to be confronted with your word, to be humble, and then to become a doer and not a hearer only. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Genuine faith in Christ produces godly wisdom. And the first proof to demonstrate that we are producing God's wisdom as we walk in faith, we see in verse 13, and that is to pursue good works. What we see here in verse 13 is that a wise person demonstrates, or a wise Christian more more particularly, demonstrates their faith by their godly actions. In verse 13, James gives us the answer to the question, how can you tell if you're wise? Or how do you tell if someone else is wise? First, he asks the question. He says, who is a wise man? Now that word wise there goes beyond knowledge. It's not just an accumulation of facts. It's when the accumulation of facts produces life application. It's where the rubber meets the road. For example, it's like if you were to cross a street here in Mesa, there's those little street crosser signs, right? And that if there's an orange hand, what's it mean? Stop. Don't walk across the street. Knowledge is knowing that. Red hand means stop. White light of person walking means walk. Right? You know that. But if you walk, hmm. So then wisdom is applying that knowledge. 
you come to the stoplight, you see this red hand, you wait for it to change, then you also know by wisdom, by knowledge, that not everybody obeys traffic lights, so you look left, you look right, you look left again, and if it's clear, you walk across the street, right? That's wisdom. It's applied knowledge. It's not just the knowledge, it's the applied knowledge. That's what the wise or the wisdom means here. So who is a wise man? Who has this wisdom among you? He also uses another word. Who is a wise man and who is endued with knowledge? That word knowledge could also be translated understanding. It refers to not just, again, not merely knowing things, but it refers to being able to apply it with an expert level of skill or expert level of it, it implies a level of expertise. So the test that James is proposing here is who among you, and remember he's writing to Christians, you among the church, who among you is wise? Do you think you're wise? Do you think you have knowledge or understanding? Maybe it might be this way. Maybe you don't think you're wise, but you think somebody else might be wise. Who, who among you is wise? How do you tell? Is, it, is knowledge enough? Well, these words that we've already studied tells us that's probably not the case. And James gives the answer to the question that tells us definitely knowledge alone is not the case for wisdom. He says, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. So here's the answer. If you are wise, let him show. Right away we see that this is not... um, based on knowledge alone, true wisdom is revealed by your actions. In fact, that word, let him show, goes beyond the idea of see, you know, just revealing, like pulling the curtain up. It's not just, hey, look at my clicker. This is cool, right? I've shown it to you. But this show is more than just that. It's let me prove it to you. This is what James said earlier in chapter 2 in verse uh, 18. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. As we studied that, we remember that was the word prove. Prove to me your faith is genuine without works, and I will prove mine is by my works. That's the same word here. It's prove. So, who is a man, a wise man, endued with knowledge among you? Let him prove how. Out of a good conversation, his works. Now this is to say, out of his good conduct. This is the foundation on which a person proves their wisdom. They live a life that pleases God. A wise person's way of life, their good conversation, will be characterized by actions, works, that are then done in the humility that true wisdom produces. Here, that meekness of wisdom. Uh, meekness could be translated humility. It might be in your uh, translation, what, depending on what version you're looking at this evening. But the humility here, very simply, is to have a low view of self. Not a wrong view of self, notice, but a low view of self. Humility is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's importance. True wisdom produces humility, and this is so opposite of everything you hear in the world today. Just as I've been thinking about this and maybe more alert to just looking for um, examples of non-humility and the wisdom of the world, 
I was listening to a podcast, and I, I wrote down some quotes I'd like to share with you um, from that. I was listening to a podcast, a secular podcast about sports, um, but one man was talking about a, an athlete and said, it's the age of self-promotion. You have to promote yourself because no one else will. And I just thought that is exactly the opposite of the wisdom James is talking about. You have to, you have to make yourself important. What does James say true wisdom is? It's humble. It doesn't make a big deal about myself. Another one that in that same podcast, shortly thereafter, he said, self-confidence is very important. And I think that's so dangerous when we have self-confidence. If my confidence is in me, I tell you what, I'm going to fail <laughs> every time. And I'm going to be disappointed and wonder, how in the world did I get to this terrible place? Because my confidence is not in my Savior. My confidence is in me. That's a terrible thing. Even when it comes to kindness, my son Ezra has a book from the library. They do this thing at our library where they just give you a bunch of books that are age-appropriate for your kid. And some of them are really good and others we don't like as much. But he has one book called The Kindness Book. And it talks about good conduct and how to be kind. And one of the pages, I forget exactly what it says, but kindness is like looking after yourself or, or something like that, right, honey? Like... Uh, promoting yourself that's kindness and so i usually just ignore that page or when i'm reading it to ezra i say kindness is putting yourself last <laughs> because that's what true kindness is it's not self-promoting it has a, it doesn't it's not overly impressed by a sense of your own importance james is saying here that an attitude of humility and that good works are the proof of genuine wisdom. You know, when I was a child, my mom would look for proof in my life, especially when I claimed to be sick. I may have been a child known for just wanting to get out of school. And so there was a time whenever I would say, you know, I'm not feeling well. Whether it was legitimate or not, my mom would have a series of tests. You know, take the temperature. She'd observe me. Is his forehead hot? Is he sluggish? Does it does he wince every time he swallows something? Is his skin covered in red rashes? You know, there's evidence for being sick. And she was trying to rule out a false claim to sickness by looking at the evidence. And that is the way it is in our Christian life. We, as Christians, ought to be displaying God's wisdom. But we might be displaying false wisdom if the evidences are not there. We need to, therefore, pursue good works in humility. The evidence of godly wisdom is good conduct and humility of spirit. Now, there are some good works that we could do. What are some good works? You know, a good conversation. You know, be kind one to another. Not saying be kind to yourself necessarily, like that book, but be kind one to another. Greet visitors. Be friendly to everyone. Meet together as a, as a church. Pray for one another. Give financially to the ministry of the church, wherever you are. Pray for your pastor and for those around you. These are all, and there's many, 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 many more good works. Those are evidences. But as we all know, good works can be done in one of two spirits. A spirit of pride or a spirit of humility. How do you tell the difference? Well, 
When someone misunderstands you, a spirit of pride responds in anger. But a spirit of humility moves on. When you are removed from maybe a a project or if someone needs to replace you on an area you're serving, a spirit of pride gets angry and tries to cling to what is mine. And a spirit of humility submits to leadership and lets it go and finds other ways to serve. The spirit of pride says, I will serve where I want and where I say I fit. And the spirit of humility says, let me serve where I'm needed, no matter if I feel like it's a good fit for me or not. Do you consider yourself wise or spiritually mature? Or how about this? Do you consider somebody else to be wise or spiritually mature? What's the evidence? And do not point to education. Do not point to degrees, to vocabulary, to age even. Point to a life. What's the evidence? Is it good works characterized by humility? Or is it pride? Is it proud and boasting? One of those, the humility, is genuine wisdom. The other is not. And then let me encourage you. If that was pretty harsh, let me me encourage you. Lots of us probably don't think we're very wise. You know, I'm just not a wise person. Are you submitting to God's will? Are you doing so in a spirit of humility? That is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you are submitting to God's will, that is more wise than anything the world has to offer. That's the first proof for um, genuine wisdom being worked out in your life. The second proof we see in verse 14 and 16 is to put an end to chaos. Put an end to chaos because worldly wisdom promotes chaos, confusion, and disorder, especially within the body of believers. In verse 14 and 15, we see the description of worldly wisdom. James says, but, but if you have bitter envying, now this word bitter envying is, is two words, bitter and then, and then zeal. Now that word zeal, that's translated envying here, that's the negative sense of zeal. In the positive sense could be like enthusiastic, you know, on fire for the Lord and, or something like that. But here it's negative, so it's jealousy or zeal. This is the classic I'm number one mentality. This is the classic me first at the expense of others. This is I want well, anything. You know, I desi- whatever my desire is, and I'm willing to sacrifice somebody else's good for it. One writer said that envy is an ulcer of the soul. It's not a good thing. And then bitter. Bitter envying. The bitter here has the connotation of being angry or harsh. It's really an aggressive word. So bitter envying is not simply you know, promoting your own desires or opinion above and at the expense of other people. It is fiercely promoting yourself at the expense of other people. Fiercely putting yourself first and being aggressive in pursuing your own desires. It's the opposite of humility. And then he combines that word, bitter envying, with the word strife or selfish ambition. This was used in the first century of politics. 
of partisan politics, where parties would argue and be at political war with other parties, not unlike the system we have today. You combine the fierce pursuit of your own desires at the expense of other people with partisan party infighting, and what do you have? You have strife. You have, um, as he says in verse 16, confusion in every evil work. But James doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just say there's bitter envying and strife. Where does he source it? Where does this stuff come from? My heart. The opposite of the humility that godly wisdom brings is selfish ambition, ambition and bitter envying. It's an angry competition that resides in my heart. In my life, I cannot blame my circumstances. I cannot blame other people. I can blame me for that strife in my life where I am angry and or maybe not necessarily you wouldn't say angry, but that bitter envying, that pursuit of my own desires, that doesn't come from other people. That comes from you, and that is a problem. There seems that there might be some people in the group that James was writing to that didn't really care too much, that they were dividing the church and at war with other people because he adds this part to verse 14. He says, glory not. Stop boasting and stop lying against the truth. He comes after those who might be comfortable in their bitter envying, selfish ambition, and proud ways. Another translation of this would be, don't sin against the truth by boasting of your wisdom. If you think you are wise, but you boast about it, you exalt your wisdom over others, you make it a parade. Everybody, I am wise. Or, and it's not usually probably, to be fair, you've probably not heard anybody say that. Maybe you have, I don't know. But you can tell in somebody's actions, right? Somebody who thinks a lot about themselves, somebody who thinks they have a lot of answers, always tries to give an answer, not always waiting for, to hear the whole matter, but just jumping in to, to be heard and make sure their way is known. That person is evidencing that they do not have true wisdom because godly wisdom is always humble. James goes on to say that this wisdom is not from above. Don't be glorying in that kind of wisdom because it's not from above. Remember in chapter 1, verse 17, where James told us all good and perfect gifts come from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness or shadow of turning. This kind of competitive, selfish wisdom does not come from above. Instead, it comes from three places. First of all, it is earthly. That's simply to say, it's of the earth. It's confined to where we as humans are confined, by space and time and, and matter and um, and knowledge. It's confined. It's not God's. It's also sensual. Now, this is not like the gross sexual lust of the flesh. Here, this word sensual in the King James would be better translated as natural. That is quite simply the absence of things that are spiritual, the absence of things that are supernatural, that are from God. It's earthly, confined to this world. It's sensual. It's natural just based on the things of this earth. 
and it is demonic or demon-inspired. Wisdom that is fiercely competitive, as he is described in verse 14 and 15, is not from God, it is from demons. The results of this wisdom we see in verse 16. We've seen where it's from and what it's like. But what, is it, what does it result in? It results in confusion and every evil work. This kind of worldly wisdom that James is talking about opens the door to all sorts of evil, to all sorts of sin and wickedness. Each person's actions have consequences for the life of the church. Remember, the context is within the church. Not just your own personal life. We're talking about each other. Those around us who have gathered tonight. And it also spills into your personal life. But the focus here is among groups within us. As you pursue your own will in the church, you are having a negative impact on the church. When we pursue peace and humility, God is glorified and the church grows. But when Christians pursue their own will and glory, it leads to chaos and confusion and other sins. The word for confusion is the word disorder, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 8. A double-minded man is unstable in all his word ways. This is the same word. And in chapter 3, verse 8, where it says the tongue is an unruly evil. It's unruly. It's uncontrollable. The same word is here used for confusion. It's the idea of anarchy. You know, over th- no bounds. Being able to do whatever. It, it, it's chaotic. And every evil work refers to anything evil. One writer says that when we fight for power in Christian circles, evil establishes a foothold. When we make church about what I want and setting up my kingdom, we allow evil within this body. If each person seeks only their own good, the good of the whole group will be jeopardized. I'm going to purposefully use a basketball and not a football illustration tonight. If you've ever been on a basketball team, and I haven't, but I've seen basketball played, nobody, or soccer even, nobody likes a ball hog. Nobody likes someone who is looking for their own glory and to promote themselves on a team. They don't. What does that person do? They, they, they jeopardize the good of the team. Even if they're a good player, if they play me ball, when it's a team sport, they're jeopardizing the team's chances of victory. And when we in the church play me ball, play my desires over yours, instead of working together, we jeopardize the whole mission of the church. We must put an end to that kind of chaos. In the church, one example of bitter envying would be desiring a specific position. Maybe a teacher or a Bible study leader, director of something, um, usher, door greeter. You desire a specific position or office or role. And then you try to manipulate circumstances or rally people around you to get what you want. That divides the church and plunges it into chaos. Maybe you've been wronged by someone or feel like you've been wronged by a brother or sister in Christ. And instead of taking care of it the way God described by going to them and asking maybe for forgiveness for what you've done and letting them know and trying to resolve it biblically... You instead rally people, you gossip behind people's back, and you have a group in the church that's rallied together. 
That's bitter envying. Anytime you pursue your desires ahead of what God requires, you are participating in bitter envying. There is no place in the church for members to be seeking their own glory. So think about your actions. The way you interact with your fellow church members. Are you seeking your own desires? In where you serve, in how you serve, in the people you choose to talk to, in the services you choose to attend? Think about your actions. Are you self-seeking? Or seeking self-fulfillment? Those who worship at the altar of self will create evil attitudes in their heart that hurts the congregation and exacerbates their own frustration. Godly wisdom is humble and brings about peace. It is the wisdom to put an end to chaos, striving against one another. And the final proof we see in verse 17 and 18, that's to prioritize peace. A wise Christian produces peace in the church by their actions. In contrast to the worldly wisdom described in verse 14 through 16, James now talks about godly wisdom. And we know this because he says in verse 17, the wisdom that is from above. Because God, get, God is above, and he gives all good and perfect gifts, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 17. This wisdom is God's wisdom from above. And he says it is first pure. That's important. This is first because it's primary. One thing that is true about peace is that we do not sacrifice purity in the pursuit of peace as a church and as individuals. What purity is most important. Um, he says, uh, purity here, this is to be sin-stained free. It's an unmixed and untainted by anything earthly, sensual, or demonic. Uh, when you think about something unmixed, or something that is not pure, I think a good, maybe maybe slightly graphic illustration would be if you were at somebody's house and they offered you a drink of cold water, and you said, ah, oh, that sounds really great. I'd love a tall, clear glass of ice-cold water. Oh, that would be so refreshing. But instead of getting you a glass, they go to the sink and they pull out a bowl that had last night's chili in it. And it wasn't all gone, so they kind of scraped it out a little bit. And then they took some warm water and just poured it in and handed you the bowl and said, here, take a drink. That water is not pure is it? It's tainted with chili. And what's far worse than being tainted with chili is being tainted with sin. In your life and in the life of the, the congregational life here, the corporate life of the church, we must be pure. Our focus on serving the Lord and pleasing Him. Unmixed from the stain of the world. And the following seven characteristics grow out of this purity. First of all, it's peaceable. This is the opposite of strife. The opposite of seeking me firstness. It's submitting to others so we live in a harmonious relationship. It's non-combative. Next is gentle. Gentility and then the next one, easy to be entreated, are somewhat complementary to each other. And that being gentle is when you are is from a position of strength or a position where you are right when somebody wrongs you. Instead of being angry and berating them, the gentle person, when wronged, 
embodies Jesus' teaching of turning the other cheek. And they do not insist on their own rights. They're gentle. They don't respond in kind. We're easy to be entreated. It could also be translated as compliant or obedient, or willing to submit, is when you do the wrong. You are the, the wronger, <laughs> the one who does the wrong. And then you are willing to yield your will to another. You're willing to, to stop pushing the issue. Lots of us, when we do wrong, we, just, we don't want to look like a fool, so we just cling to it and say, I'm going down with the ship. We're easy to be entreated when confronted with my sin. I let go of it. I do not insist on my rights. And I yield my will. Next is to be full of mercy. That's the product of wisdom. Mercy here is compassion and kindness towards those in need. God's wisdom produces kindness to those in need. Next is full of good fruits. God's wisdom produces the fruit of the Spirit, the good fruit, the, um, as we see here, um, just in verse 17 or even in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. It's without partiality. We saw this in chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. Godly wisdom does not value people based on external judgments of who is worth more than somebody else. Valuing them the same before the Lord. And without hypocrisy, this is single-minded. This is genuine. The word here indicates not acting. Now that's a classic illustration for people in church, isn't it? Coming into church and wearing a mask, pretending everything's okay, pretending to be someone you're not because you feel like you need to put on a persona to match some level of spiritualness that's not described in Scripture but seems socially appropriate. Without hypocrisy is genuine, is sincere, not hiding behind a mask. Genuine faith produces that single-minded, genuine um, attitude. And then in verse 18, finally is the, the, the wrap-up to the whole section here. It gives the results of godly wisdom. It's done in a proverbial form. James oftentimes is referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's proverbial in nature and provides a logical summary of the whole discussion on wisdom. It says, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Another way you could translate that that would maybe bring out its meaning a little more clearly is that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the result of God's wisdom in your life. A harvest, as you can imagine, fields. We do have fields here in the, the Phoenix Valley, different crop fields. It's really weird to see them, in my opinion. We have big city, and then, oh, cornfields, weird. But to me, seeing a big field of harvest is a, is a comforting thing. Seeing something, a harvest field full of produce, of fruit. And the harvest was sown in peace by the peacemakers, those who are living by godly wisdom, sow this peace and then reap righteousness. The virtues of God's wisdom can only be produced in the context of peace. Therefore, as one writer says, peace is the ultimate goal of wisdom 
and wisdom only reaches its fullest potential in the midst of peace. Therefore, we must prioritize peace, never at the expense of purity, always keeping ourselves unstained of the world, but in the world, working nonetheless. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall receive, they shall be called the children of God. Genuine faith in Christ produces godly wisdom. How do you know if your faith is producing wisdom? Well, first of all, you pursue good works. You don't just say you have wisdom and boast about it. You humbly do the things that God has required, submitting to his will. Pretty simple, an idea, a little harder in application. You also put an end to chaos. Within the body of believers, we are not against each other. It's not me against you, it's us together for the Lord. And finally, we prioritize peace. We refuse to seek our own desires and promote peace among one another. Submitting to one another, being gentle and merciful, being easy to be entreated without partiality and genuine in our interactions. Let us be here at Calvary known as people who are wise in our actions towards one another. Let's pray in closing. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to study it. Father, wisdom is sometimes a tricky subject where we think it's a, a big or, or hard to understand, but it's really simple. Trust, obey, and submit. Submit to your will, submit to others. View them as more important and serve you most of all. Not only did you create us, but you sent Jesus Christ who shed his blood to purchase us. Thank you for doing that, and we pray that you would help us to live in a way that reflects your wisdom to the world around us. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.